like the Edmund Fitzgerald, Buddy Holly's final tour, the infamous Winter Dance Party of 1959, was launched in Milwaukee. Welcome to Wisconsinology. My name is Frank Anderson. I kill him in Sheboygan. All my friends back in my hometown, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Being a musician on the road can be a zombie-like routine of tiring, long journeys, haphazard sleep, constant travel. Days go by. Time takes on a strange quality. You travel to many places, but you never get to see any of them. Today, like it was in 1959, working on the road is the only source of real income for most professional musicians. However, there are some major differences between the two eras. In the 1950s, our country was replacing its once excellent infrastructure of rail travel with automobile travel. America's freeway system was new, but underdeveloped. Most road travel was done on old two-lane roads that wound through city after city, small town after small town, with their numerous stop signs and slower traffic. It took quite a while to get from point A to point B, by car, much longer than it does today. As a musician, if you were lucky, if you worked for a major star who had some backing, who might have been generous, you might travel in something resembling a refurbished Greyhound bus, but for most, the traveling was done in rented school buses, sedans, or station wagons. Touring with a band was a crowded, smelly affair involving a lot of overnight driving. In the world of touring musicians, such modern concepts as roadies, soundmen, instrument technicians did not exist. In fact, during the winter dance party, Buddy Holly himself fulfilled most of those roles. Musicians were expected to haul and set up their own gear, perform, meet with fans, tear down, load the gear into the bus or car for their next show. Tour dates were often tightly booked, so tight that it was normal to load out of a show at 11 p.m. and hit the road overnight for a three, maybe 400-mile trip to the next destination. Food was bad, hamburgers, and something new that had recently arrived in small-town Midwest America, pizza, was the usual food fare. Sickness, fatigue, very common. Clothes, especially stage clothes, usually drenched in sweat after a performance under hot lights. They needed laundering, and they often didn't get it. A country musician named Bobby Seymour told me, when you're young, the first week on the road is amazing. By the second week, you're figuring out every possible way to not do this anymore. In the winter of 1958 to 1959, Buddy Holly was newly married and living in New York City. Outwardly, he was a young, successful recording artist with a string of hit songs and a bright future. In truth, he was almost broke. There was a three-way legal mess involving Buddy, his former manager, producer, publisher, Norman Petty, 
and a New York promoter named Harold Greenfield. It involved payments expected, payments not received, and royalties owed. This was all in the process of being worked out, and until something was settled, Buddy Holly's cash flow, a considerable amount of income from song royalties, was blocked. 1958 had been a roller coaster ride for Holly. He toured England, he made numerous TV appearances, cut a lot of new songs, and started many new projects. He was a whirlwind. He had parted ways, perhaps temporarily, with his longtime backup band, the Crickets, and began his solo career. He was 22 years old. His career as a hitmaker was not even two years old. His first hit song, That'll Be the Day, having been released in the spring of 1957, a blink of an eye. Like Chuck Berry and Hank Williams, he was that rarity of rarities in the 1950s. He was a pop performer who wrote all of his own songs. Holly was in a genre, rock and roll, but he was not the usual thing, and the rock and roll fans of that era knew it. Hi, this is Buddy Holly. The Crickets and I are really happy to be coming your way on the winter dance party. We certainly hope to see all our old friends and be making some new ones too. Also, I hope you like my latest choral release, Heartbeat. See you soon. The upper Midwest was home to a large circuit of ballrooms built for big bands and dance orchestras in the 1920s and 1930s. These large halls could hold up to two to 3,000 people. If you're playing two shows a day, maybe an afternoon show and an evening show, at roughly 90 cents to a, maybe $1.25 a ticket, an all-star review with a headlining act like Buddy Holly could gross a great deal of money. Booking agents handling these rock and roll tours found in the Midwest circuit a cash cow, and they exploited every way to milk as much cash as possible. They always booked shows in consecutive nights. A band with a day off was no good to them. The company running the Winter Dance Party Tour of 1959 was GAC, General Artist Corporation. Buddy Holly signed on to headline the tour, and his fee was $500 a night. The tour included his new backup band, Waylon Jennings on bass, Waylon Jennings, future superstar, a protege of Buddy Holly, Tommy Alsop, the great Texas guitar player who had just played on Holly's two most recent chart singles, It's So Easy, a much bigger hit later in the 1970s for Linda Ronstadt, and Heartbeat. On drums was Carl Bunch from Lubbock, Texas. Richie Valens, a 17-year-old rocker from California. Dion and the Belmonts were from the Bronx. Texan J.P. Richardson, a larger-than-life personality, a big man dressed in a leopard-skin jacket and Stetson hat, known as the Big Bopper. To many of the teens in the audience, he had the biggest hit of the entire group, a song called Chantilly Lace. Frankie Sardo rounded out the bill. He was a singer from Brooklyn who had a minor hit song called Fake Out. They were doing 24 shows in 24 nights, covering six states in the middle of winter without any consideration for logistics, weather, or comfort. It all began on January 23rd in Milwaukee. 
Hi, gang, this is the Big Bopper, and I'll be on your winter dance party coming your way real soon. We'll be swinging and singing and looking forward to saying hello, baby, to all of you in person. The various acts arrived in Milwaukee on January 23rd and played a show at George Devine's Ballroom. It was packed. All the shows of this tour were packed. The next day, the entertainers boarded an old bus with no heat. It was the cheapest bus in the rental lot. A massive snowstorm had come through the area just prior to the show, and the temperatures hovered around zero. After a show in Kenosha the following night, the tour made its first long drive, 350 miles from Kenosha to Mankato, Minnesota. After Mankato, it was back to Wisconsin, to Fournier's Ballroom in Eau Claire. It was 26 below when the tour arrived to do the show. After Eau Claire, there were two more dates in Minnesota. In St. Paul, they got a new bus. It had eight heaters on board. As the bus approached the Iowa border, the heaters ceased to function. They froze solid shut. On January 30th, they played Fort Dodge in west-central Iowa. Next stop after Fort Dodge, Duluth, Minnesota. Another grueling overnight drive, 370 miles to the north. The Duluth show was memorable for the fact that Bob Dylan, then Robert Zimmerman, was in the audience. He remembered making eye contact with Buddy Holly. He thought that the singer had kind of a glow around him, like a halo. The band met with fans after the show, did the autograph thing, loaded up. The bus had been stored in the basement of the ballroom they had played at, a drive-down basement, and had been running. The tour manager thought he would get a head start on the cold weather conditions and have the bus nice and heated. They began the next leg of their journey, a 340-mile drive to Appleton, Wisconsin, where they were scheduled to play the next day at 1.30 in the afternoon. It was to be a fateful drive and for Holly, the last straw. That night, as the bus proceeded along the northern part of Wisconsin, Lake Superior, just off to their left, the temperatures plummeted to 37 below zero, and blizzard conditions engulfed the bus. The heaters broke down again. They got to Hurley, Wisconsin, then turned south on Highway 51, 10 miles south of Hurley, on that highway, in the town of Oma, while ascending a long hill, their sad, frozen bus broke down. A piston shot through the engine block. It was midnight. They were stuck, stranded on a snowbound road in the middle of Iron County, Wisconsin, the proverbial middle of nowhere. They might as well have been on the moon. The performers in the bus huddled under blankets. They set crumpled newspapers on fire in the aisle of the bus, sang songs, did what they could to keep their spirits up. Their drummer, Carl Bunch, was suffering. He was in pain. He could barely move his legs. He had put on extra socks to warm his feet, but that only caused them to sweat more. In the process of sweating and after the heaters broke down, the sweat froze. Later, he was at a hospital in Ironwood, Michigan, just across the Wisconsin-Michigan border from Hurley. At the hospital, his frozen shoes and socks had to be cut from his swollen feet. He had frostbite. Meanwhile, back on Highway 51, the winter dance party was in trouble. 
they flagged down every vehicle that passed them. A truck driver headed north to Hurley alerted the police to their predicament, and arrangements were made to have the entertainers ferried back in four automobiles to Hurley and Ironwood. At the all-night cafe of an entertainment venue called Club Carnival, the entertainers gathered. Waylon Jennings was very familiar with Hurley's incredible reputation as Sin City, a hard-living, hard-drinking, logging town filled with places of prostitution. But those days were long gone. Hurley in the 1950s was relatively tame. The afternoon show in Appleton was canceled, but it was decided that they would play the evening show in Green Bay. The entertainers desperately needed a day to regroup, to rest, to do their laundry. Most of all, they needed to do their laundry. But GAC would have none of that. They had to keep to their schedule. Buddy Holly was completely fed up with everything. He'd made up his mind to charter a flight as soon as possible. Now, to be fair, he'd been thinking about flying to gigs since the tour started. This leg of the journey was definitely the last straw, but the idea to fly and charter a flight didn't just pop into his head in Hurley, Wisconsin. The winter dance party boarded a train and arrived in Green Bay. Buddy Holly's second-to-last performance was at Green Bay's Riverside Ballroom. A number of people in the crowd noticed a weariness about the entertainers. Richie Valens, earlier in the day, had called his manager, Bob Keane, in Los Angeles to complain about the conditions of the tour. Keane was aghast. He told his young star to leave the tour at once and catch the next flight out of Green Bay. Obviously, Richie Valens did not take that advice. The Big Bopper was nursing a very bad head cold, but was his usual cheerful, upbeat self. He had a remedy he used, whiskey and cough syrup, half and half, and he was knocking it down. The next day, a new bus arrived. It had a heater. Whether it would work or not was the question. It was 20 below when the group boarded the bus for a 340-mile trip to Clear Lake, Iowa. As the bus approached Prairie du Chien in southwest Wisconsin near the Iowa border, the heater broke down. The bus driver pulled into a gas station in Prairie du Chien to get it repaired. Buddy Holly went to the payphone. He called New York to check on the situation with his songwriting royalties. Things were not going well. When he returned to the bus, he was angry. As the bus crossed the border into Iowa, Buddy Holly was agitated and more determined than ever to get a charter flight after the next show. At Clear Lake, and rather than go through a 400-mile bus ride to Moorhead, Minnesota, which is near Fargo, he chartered a flight. Riding with him on that plane was the Big Bopper and Richie Valens. As we all know, the plane crashed shortly after takeoff, killing all of the occupants, including the 21-year-old pilot, Roger Peterson. The winter dance party didn't pause to mourn their deaths. The tour continued on, making every single remaining performance, night after night, right on schedule. Meanwhile, in Wisconsin, the brutal winter of 1959 did not let up. Not long after the winter dance party crossed the Wisconsin border, Vince Lombardi, the newly hired coach of the then 
hapless Green Bay Packers drove his family north to their new home in Green Bay. As they drove along while staring out the window at a desolate snowscape of 10-foot-high roadside drifts and sub-zero temperature, Vince Lombardi's daughter quietly wondered if they had been consigned to some kind of frozen hell. Sixty years has passed, and the Winter Dance Party of 1959 has become a legend. Buddy Holly has become a legend, an inspiration to countless bands and musicians over the years. Wisconsin's brutal winter definitely played a role in that outcome. As for the relatively quiet scene that the stranded entertainers found themselves in, Hurley, it has recently been reported that Hurley today has somewhat reclaimed its former reputation in that it has the highest per capita ratio of strippers in the United States. Until next time, for Wisconsinology Podcast, my name is Frank Anderson. I kill him in Sheboygan. All my friends back in my hometown, Milwaukee. Wisconsin. Oh, here's the way we've had a problem. They're called them Democrats as an insult. That's the sailor's way. Don't turn this damn bus around. That'll end your brain in a little field trip. I am not a zombie. I'm not a zombie. Came all the way from Wisconsin to tell me this?